You're listening to the City Church Tallahassee podcast. For more information about City Church, please visit us online at citychurchtallahassee.com. Hey, good morning, City Church. Uh, My name is Zach Meredith. I'm the groups director here. Uh, Thank you for being here with us this morning. It's been an awesome morning. Got to celebrate two baptisms at the 830 service, then two baptisms just now. It's so awesome uh, to be together and to worship God together. Uh, This morning, we're going to be continuing in our study of the book of Acts. So if you have your Bible, we are going to primarily be in Acts 4 today. So you can go ahead and flip there with me. And I personally love that we are going through this book together. Um, in this stage in our life as a church, as many of you know, we're in this let's go two-year initiative, and we really get to see the blueprint of what we're trying to do here played out in the book of Acts, right? One of our main goals in let's go is to expand the reach of the gospel here in Tallahassee and all across the world, and we get to take a deep dive into the start of the church, into the first missionaries going, into being uh, evangelistic and telling others and the growing of the church. So I've enjoyed it. I hope you have as well. Uh, but like I said, today we're going to be in chapter four primarily. And if you were here last week, you know that we looked at Acts 3. And we saw the story of Peter uh, healing a, a lifelong disabled man and saying, get up and walk. But then he tells him, hey, your greatest need is not a physical healing, right? But your greatest need is a spiritual healing. And it's, it's interesting and good to know that chapters 3 last week and chapter 4 this week are the same story, right? It's the same scene. We haven't gone anywhere else yet. We're still right here at the temple, uh, at the uh, courtyard of the temple. So we saw Peter heal a man. The crowd gathers, they're in awe. What is going on? Peter sees it as an opportunity. Hey, I'm going to preach the gospel real quick. And he preaches the gospel And then that's where chapter 3 ends. So we're going to see what happens after that. So I'm going to pray, and then we're going to dive in. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this opportunity to come together to dive into your word. God, I pray that as we do, uh, we would learn from it. We'd see the example of Peter and John and and the church, and that we would just be spurred to live boldly um, and to to share the good news of the gospel uh, more bold uh, than when we walked in this morning. Uh, we love you and thank you for your scripture, God. I pray uh, as uh, our college students come back that you would give them a safe trip and that uh, we would have a great rest of the, of the service. your name I pray, amen. Please help them in their like 45-hour drive back. Um, so uh, as we pick up in chapter four, okay, we're gonna see what happens, like I said, after Peter and John as they boldly preach the gospel. Let's dive in and look at verse one. It says, while they were speaking to the people, so while Peter and John are preaching, while they're speaking to the people, the priest, the captain of the temple police, and the Sadducees confronted them because they were annoyed that they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. So they seized them and took them into custody until the next day, since it was already evening. But Many of those who heard the message believed, and the number of men came to about 5,000. So as we continue to look at this scene, we can almost picture, right, these, the, the Jewish leaders, the religious elite, just kind of sitting in the wings just watching, right? And they, they say, oh man, Peter, he just, that was interesting. He just healed a guy that we've passed hundreds of times throughout the years. Now that guy can walk. And they hear Peter's sermon, 
where Peter preaches a very clear gospel and they have to do something about it. So they go and they confront and arrest Peter and John. Why? For proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the, of the dead. See, the apostles here, they weren't preaching rules like the Pharisees did. They were preaching resurrection. And although they get arrested, look at verse 4. There is light here. But many of those who heard the message believed, and the number of men came to about 5,000. As we continue to go through Acts, uh, this seems to be a common theme, right? That's repeated over and over again. There were repeated attempts to suppress the Christian, me- the Christian mes- message only causes it to spread more quickly. Despite Satan's best attempts here to keep the gospel quiet, the gospel message of Jesus Christ is not only spread, it's not only told, but we're re- we read right here, it's believed. People believe it. They start following Christ. If you remember in chapter one on Pentecost, the number of, of, the, of the church numbered around 120. And then in chapter two, Peter preaches a message. And the church grows to 3,000. And now after they heal the man, Peter's sermon They get arrested, it says, more believed. And now it's up to 5,000. We see this growth of the church. So Peter and John, they're arrested. They're escorted to stand trial before the same court, interestingly enough, that condemned Jesus that we read about back in the Gospels. And this court consisted of rulers and elders and scribes. It's like this all-star team of Jewish uh, elite and Jewish law and Old Testament interpretation. These guys knew their stuff. And they ask Peter and John, they say, hey, we saw what you did. How did you do that? Was that the same guy? Did you put a plant there to make yourself look better? Like, what's going on? How did you heal that guy? And then also, how do you know so much about Jesus? How do you know about these teachings and teaching the resurrection? What's going on? So they ask him these things and look at with me at Peter's response in in verse 8. It says, Then Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit. And he said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today about a good deed done to a disabled man and by what means he was healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified and whom God raised from the dead, by him, by Jesus, this man is standing here before you healthy. This Jesus is the stone rejected by you builders, which has become the cornerstone. Then right here in verse 12, there is, no, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to people by which we must be saved. Peter, man, responds to these questions with boldness, right? Unashamed of the gospel, he strips himself of any pride. And I, I, that'd be hard to do. I mean, you just healed the guy who couldn't walk and now he's literally standing right next to you. You preach two sermons and 5,000 people come to the Lord. That's like a preacher's dream, right? And he's like, no, 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 it wasn't me. It wasn't me. And he gives glory to God. And this is so interesting because this is the same Peter, this is the same guy that literally a hundred days before was confronted by a 10-year-old girl and he cowered. I mean, 10-year-old girls are scary. I know that. I was in youth ministry for a long time. They're scary. 
But if you remember that, uh, the story, right, where Jesus is in this same court and Peter's by the fire warming his hands and he's kind of looking to see what's happening to Jesus and this little girl walks up and is like, hey, aren't you with Jesus? And what does he do? No, that's, that's not me. No, 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 I hear your accent. I hear the twang. You're with Jesus. What does he do again? No, 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 that's not me. That's not me. She goes, one more time, you're with Jesus. And he goes, I promise you I'm not with Jesus. And then the rooster crows three times, right? We know that story. This is that same Peter who cowered by being accused by a a 10-year-old girl is now standing before the elites of the religious world and he's boldly proclaiming the gospel. What happened? Why does Peter show no fear here? Well, before Jesus' crucifixion, death and resurrection, when Peter faced that girl, that little girl, he was alone. But at this point, Look at verse 8. He was filled with the Holy Spirit. It's the same Holy Spirit that dwells in us, right, believers in this room. That's the Holy Spirit that gave Peter, that gave John, that gave the Christians that we read about in Acts the boldness to proclaim the gospel that was so countercultural. I mean, we see it three times in this section of Scripture alone. Verses 8, 25, 27 of the Holy Spirit at work in the believer. And the boldness that stems from knowing that, hey, I have the Holy Spirit at work in me. And so a question we can ask, and I think it's good to ask is, well, these guys preach and then they got arrested. So what in Peter's message in chapter 4 was so offensive, right? What did Peter say that got him and John arrested? That later on in Acts we'll read that got Paul thrown in jail multiple times. That got every apostle killed for their faith. That rubs our culture wrong even today. Look at verse 12 again. There's the answer. It says, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to people by which we must be saved. That's it. Right? There's no other name under which we find, you find your salvation other than Jesus. Jesus is the only way. He's the only way to gain right standing before a holy God in any other way we try to devise to go down for salvation and forgiveness, we're left in the stains of our sin. It's vain. Look at John 14, 6. Jesus told him, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is the only way to salvation. And then again, in Romans 6, 23, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Oh, in, where is the gift of eternal life from God located? It's in Christ Jesus our Lord. Right, freedom from our sin, eternal life with God is found in Jesus and Jesus alone. So why is that so offensive? Well, I believe it's because it's offensive because it goes everything, it goes against everything the world tells us to do to find freedom, to find success, to find uh, forgiveness. You know, I believe in a very self-made culture, living a life that makes less of us and more of him is offensive, right? Living, a culture, living in a culture that emphasizes individualism and name it and claim it and you can do it, you just gotta work harder, manifest it, you can achieve anything and everything. Well, preaching a message of surrender, right? Of leaning not on our own strength and knowledge but on Jesus, that's offensive. No one wants to be told that they're going to hell because of their sin. That's offensive. But I'm a good person. Good people go to heaven. Well, I think the first step is 
that we must come to realize that we need to be saved, right? We need a savior to do something in us that we can't do ourselves. And if you're anything like me, I think I speak for everyone in this room, we often try to find other avenues of peace and comfort, right? But the gospel rubs like sandpaper at times because there aren't many roads that lead to one place. There aren't. The gospel is exclusive, right? And that Jesus is the only way to salvation. But the gospel is also inclusive because it's available to people of every tribe, tongue, and nation. And that's the message that Peter and John preached right here, right? That our greatest need is not a physical need, but it's a spiritual. And the only way to be healed spiritually is through Jesus. So it's cool that the physical healing that we saw in chapter three, it fuels this message here in chapter four. So let's keep reading in chapter four, verse 13. When they observed the boldness, so when the religious elites, um, when, when, the, when the religious elites observed the boldness of Peter and John and realized that they were uneducated and untrained men, they were amazed. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. And since they saw the man who had been healed standing right next to him, they had nothing to say in opposition. So Peter here and John here, their boldness, it can be characterized by what they said and believed about Jesus, right? Outspoken about the identity of Christ. And they actually, if we back up a little bit, they refer to Jesus in, in an Old Testament, right? Peter quotes Psalm 118.22, the stone that the builders rejected had become the cornerstone. He does that to tell these Jewish leaders about the significance of Jesus, right? Referencing Jesus as the stone rejected by the leaders had now become the cornerstone. The stone that the leaders saw and then threw out and tried to kill and saw as insignificant and a problem was actually the very stone that was most significant. It's the cornerstone of our faith, at the foundation of our faith, and that's Jesus. And you can't help but kind of laugh, like, this type of reference, this scriptural analysis, it blew the minds of the Jewish leaders, right? How in the world are these two fishermen, like, able to know how to read, and, not only just how to read, but how to read and interpret the scriptures like this? How do they know to pull something out of the Old Testament, how did they know that was about Jesus? How do they know about Jesus? Why are they so bold and open about who he is? They were amazed, it says. And I love this. They had no other explanation than to know that Peter and John had been with Jesus. Knew Jesus. Believed Jesus because it was evident, right? It was evident on how they spoke and how they acted in their boldness, it literally reshaped their lives. And the Jewish leaders are sitting there going, I, I don't know what to think. I don't know what to do. These guys are different. And I'm, I'm pretty sure I've shared this before and this story before, but it, it kept on coming to the front of my mind when I was reading this and studying this. Um, I taught history and uh, coached a couple different sports at Godby High School from 2014 to 17. And if you're a teacher or a coach, you know that oftentimes you spend like a lot, a lot of time with students uh, or uh, your, um, the people on your team. 
And uh, there was this particular student that I, I think it was, my, it was my second year, that I taught in world history and I coached. So I spent a lot of time with him, probably like five hours a day, five days a week for three months. And, and we got, you know, we would always talk about different things and, you know, got kind of close. And long story short, towards the end of the year, and I don't know how the reference and how this conversation came up, but we started talking about church. And uh, we were driving to a meet. And I had said, oh, yeah, I go to church every week. I love it. And then there was like this kind of quiet silence, and I kind of turned and looked at him, and you know, he was just kind of looking at me. And you know one of those looks where he's like, really? And it was one of those things where I think he was surprised, not only that I just went to church, but that I was a Christian. And I remember like seeing that and instantly, you know, feeling like Peter when he denied Jesus. I felt like, you know, guilt, a little bit of shame. And that memory just stuck with me. And as I'm reading this, it kept on coming up, and I think it was a great reminder to me personally about how I live out the gospel in my life, in both action, but also in word. You know, was I living in a way? I think a great question to ask is, are, are you living in a way that people around us would say, hey, they've been with Jesus. Right? They, they've been with Jesus. They know Jesus. They believe who Jesus is, and they follow Jesus. And this is a little side, side note, but I think... Um, verses 13 and 14, it speaks to, I think, a common lie that Satan often puts in our heads that keeps our mouth closed for evangelism. And that is like, hey, you know, I don't know enough to share my faith with others, so I'm just going to, like, learn more, and then eventually I'll get to this, like, threshold and I'll be comfortable, right? Or, hey, I'm new to my faith. I'm going to read a little bit. I'm going to grow, and then I'll share once I know more. And, like, 15 years go by, and I'm still reading. I'm still growing, right? I think these verses put that to rest, right? You may never get a chance to receive formal training in scripture like Peter here, but we can be encouraged when we read this because we know that God can and does use his people. And I think, and I know, and we know that discipleship is important here for every Christian reading and theology and getting to know God better and who he is and his character. Theological things are important and we should pursue them. We know that we're always growing in our faith. We know that sanctification is a real thing of the Holy Spirit at work and the believer uh, making us become more like Christ in our walk. But sometimes, especially if you're new to your faith, sometimes sharing, it can be difficult. It can be intimidating. We may, we may tell ourselves that lie. And I love this quote from Pastor Tony Morita. And he says, uh, talking about this, he says, God can use the PhDs, so Paul, he can use the GEDs, the Peters. He uses doctors like Luke. And he even uses the tax collectors like Matthew. He says, praise God that in his grace he uses all of us. I think that's such a great, a great quote to think about. He uses all of us. And if, if you're maybe not sure how to share the gospel or what it looks like for you to live on mission in Tallahassee or globally, or you're maybe not sure what your role is in the Great Commission and what that looks like, you heard it a couple times today already, but our missions team is putting on a conference called To the World, May or March 2nd, bless you, uh, March 2nd and 3rd, and uh, uh, this would be, or March 3rd and 4th, I'm sorry, and it would be a great tool and resource for you. And that's the end of my plug, Craig, you owe me five bucks, you know where my Venmo is. Let's continue, actually make it 15, because we're starting in verse 15 again. Verse 15, it says, after they order them, to leave the Sanhedrin. So after the Jewish elite ordered Peter and John to leave, they conferred amongst themselves. 
saying, what should we do with these men? For an obvious sign has been done through them, clear to everyone living in Jerusalem, and we can't even deny it, but so that this does not spread any further among the people, let's threaten them. Again, speaking to anyone in this name, the name of Jesus. So they called for them and they ordered them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. And Peter and John answered them. It says, whether it's right in the sight of God for us to listen to you rather than the God, will you decide? But hey, we're unable to stop speaking about what we have seen and what we have heard. And although here we see them threatened, told to be quiet, don't talk anymore about Jesus, they couldn't do it. Right? Peter and John could not deny the evidence of the resurrection of Jesus. They saw it with their own eyes. They knew that the death and the resurrection happened, and they fully believed who Jesus was, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit. And because of this reality, they knew without a doubt that nothing of this world could overcome the kingdom of God. Right? Not the judge, not the, the, the scribes and the Pharisees and Sadducees, no man, not a plan or scheme or government can thwart the spread of the gospel and the supremacy of God. And they said, hey, respectfully, like, can't stop talking about the things that I know to be true. What we have seen and heard, I can't do it. Verse 23, it says, after they were released, they went to their own people. So after they were released, they go back to the church and reported everything the chief priest and the elders had said to them. Jumping to verse 31, when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled was shaken and they were filled with the Holy Spirit. There it is again. And it began to speak the word of God boldly. This is an incredible story. It's an incredible story. Peter and John, they heal a guy. They stand boldly in the temple. They preach the gospel. They're taken into custody. They're threatened. Right? They're told to stop talking about Jesus and his resurrection or else. They said, we're not going to do it. Respectfully, we're not going to do it. We're not going to stop. They go back to their church. And what do they do? They pray for more boldness. They pray for more boldness in the face of persecution. And once again, we see this non-negotiable role of prayer right, in the life of the believer in the church. And all throughout Acts, you see the church join in prayer together. And I think it's interesting to look at their prayer and see one defining characteristic. Right? They prayed for mission over comfort. Prayed for mission over comfort. In their mission, mission the church prayed for boldness and perseverance rather than comfort. How easy would it be for them to be like, hey, please take away this persecution. Help us have an easy life. Help us just be able to, to, to worship you without any fear. Instead, they go, hey, we know persecution's coming. So give us boldness, God. Give us perseverance. Because they knew that Jesus was worth more than anything, like even their own lives. And Paul talks about this in Philippians when he says to live is Christ and to die is gain. And maybe while many of us today don't face that same physical persecution that we read about in Acts and the Bible, there is socially and relationally persecution that exists here in America, that exists here in Florida and Tallahassee. It's real. And sometimes it's very hard to be a Christian. And we know that 
Suffering is unavoidable for the Christian. Uh, we talk about that all the time. And I think it's interesting, historically, we can look at generation and generation and see how the gospel always cut against the unique cultural conviction and norms at that time in some way. This isn't new. And Jesus talks about this and tells us this as well in Luke, in Luke 21. He says, but before all these things, pause, before what? He's talking about things that are going to have to happen before he comes back. Okay, before all these things, and tell me if this doesn't remind you of what we just read about in Acts 4. It says, they, lay, they will lay their hands on you. They will persecute you. They will hand you over to the synagogues and the prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors because of my name. But hey, this will give you an opportunity to bear witness. Therefore, make up your minds not to prepare your defense ahead of time, like live just be, live as a Christian. He goes, for I will give you such words and a wisdom. I will give you the Holy Spirit that none of your adversaries will be able to resist or contradict. Right? We are promised here by Jesus that suffering will come. But we're also given a better promise as well, and that's the Holy Spirit. And that's the Holy Spirit that gives words when we don't know what to say. It gives wisdom, gives us boldness. It gives us conviction, to, uh, not tomorrow. Next week, we're going to talk about it giving discernment. The Holy Spirit brings scriptures to mind at the right time. Holy Spirit opens the heart of unbelievers to the message of the gospel. I mean, what a gift, right, that we as Christians in this room are given, and that should in and of itself make us bold. So while we know persecution will come, we also see evidence here in Acts that persecution advances the gospel because it validates the gospel. And as I was studying um, this uh, in ch chapter 4, I was just trying to think about, you know, a lot of the conversations I've had with different people about what evangelism looks like for them and their struggles and their successes. And I thought of, like about myself and my struggles in evangelism and, and maybe some times where I was bold and successes living evangelistically. And I came up with a list of like seven different approaches that I've encountered on how Christians see their evangelistic view. And they'll be on the screen and we'll walk through them real quick. The first one is ashamed, right? Just being ashamed of your faith, just kind of cowering. You know, if I don't want to be lumped in with, with those people. I don't want to be called this or get thought of as that. So I'm just going to, you know, be quiet and be ashamed of it. The second is apathetic, right? No urgency. Just don't really care to share your faith. Hey, it's just me. It's just my faith. I'm going to just live that way. The third is timid or afraid, right? Hey, I would share more, but I'm scared of uncomfortable situations. So I'm not going to say anything. I don't want to be awkward, so I'm just not going to say anything. Number four is reactionary, right? People that are open to talk about their faith, but they'll only do it if somebody asks first. So they don't go looking for opportunities. Right, yeah, I'll wear a cross. I'll wear a Christian shirt. There was like this uh, brand when I was in high school of shirts and it just said, Jesus is my homeboy. And I, I wore that shirt one time, that was embarrassing. Um, but you wear the shirts, right? And then, and then you hope somebody comes up and goes, hey, you're a Christian, tell me about the gospel. I'm ready to receive it. And you tell them, you're like, that was great. I've just lived evangelistically. But you don't go and look for opportunities. Number five, crusaders, right? There's, there's a war on, on Christ, you know, keep Christ in Christmas. We must go back to a Christian America. Like, I, I, I agree with, you know, 
Um, some of the thought behind that, I think some of it is a little bit misguided. But basically what I'm trying to say is, you know, people sometimes live in a way where they need to strap on a sword and say, Jesus, get behind me. I'm going to protect you. Jesus, just stay back there. I got this. I'm going to charge. I'm a crusader. We have to protect Jesus. Number six, people who live active, right? Actively looking for ways to talk about their faith. And then number seven, just unapologetic. That, hey, I'm going to share the gospel. I'm going to share my faith knowing that it's going to be bad for me. I may be ridiculed in my class. My teammates may look at me different now. I may have to sit by myself at lunch. This is going to torpedo my career path. This is going to ruin or, or make uncomfortable some relationships that I love. You know, this is going to, something I need to talk to my spouse about, but like, you know, it could be weird. You do it anyway, knowing. And I'd bet, like myself, most of us uh, Christians in general think that what does it look like to be bold in our faith? They would probably look at this and go, probably four, five, and six, right? That's the range, four, five, and six. Now, oftentimes, you don't even see number seven as an option. I'm not doing that. But as we read in the book of Acts, and to specifically today in chapter four, I mean, the early Christians, Peter, John, Paul, they eat number seven for breakfast, and they come back for more. I mean, literally, we just read about it. They're persecuted. They get threatened. They get thrown in jail. They get out. What do they do? God, give me more. Give me more boldness in the face of persecution. Because evangelism, it plays such an important role in the life of a believer, right? And the spread of the gospel. And we see here, right, and all throughout Acts in the Bible, that the way God chooses to spread his name is by word, right? Verbal communication is how we are called to tell others about the good news of the gospel. And yeah, we are, uh, uh, we're, we need to live set apart, live in a way where people do say, hey, they've been with Jesus, but that's not where it ends. Um, boldness and proclaiming the work of the gospel is what we see here in Acts, proclaiming it and is what we're called to do. And so as, a, as we conclude, there were two questions that kept on popping up in my head as I was looking at this and reading it and thinking about it and praying over it. And number one, they're, they're very practical questions. How can I be bold? Like, what does it look like for me to be bold today? And number two, like, why? Why should I be bold? What, why should I live boldly? Well, the first one, how can I be bold? What does it look like? I think the first thing we can do is just be unashamed of the gospel and teachings of scriptures, right? Uh, standing firm, like in this riverbed of this flowing uh, current of cultural pressures that sweeps so many off their feet. I heard a pastor say, to have some concrete in our boots, to stand firm in the rushing waves of culture, stand firm in the promises of scripture, stand firm in the truth. I think another thing we can do uh, to, to uh, what does it look like for us to live boldly is to leverage all relationships that we have to gospel conversations out of love. Not like a hook, but like, hey, every relationship we have, like we can share the love of Christ with them. We do that out of love because we love them. Another one is this kind of like a Jesus juke, but pray, right? And we can pray because we look here and we see the church pray. What do they pray for? They pray for more boldness so we can pray. We can pray for more boldness. And, number f uh, and the last one is that pray that God would remove idols. 
in our lives. Idols of relationship, relationships, appearance, career advancement, friendships that hinder us from sharing our faith because I do think that idols shut our mouths. I think that idols shut our mouths. I think if it threatens an idol, we don't do anything. So we pray that God would remove those idols. Then the second question, why should I be bold? Why should you be bold? How? Well, I think we should be bold first and foremost because Satan is bold. This is low-hanging fruit, but I think of the Grammys two weeks ago. I think of that, the Sam Smith performance. If you know, like you know what I'm talking about? Like that was bold, right? That was bold. Satan was bold. A lot of the stuff that we see in the news and programs being pushed and laws that are being pushed, things that are shouted and chanted from the streets that go against everything we believe, that's bold. It's very bold. I can't help but think that, you know, are we, are we seeing this boldness and then we're scared to talk to our best friend Dave because it could be an awkward conversation or something? I don't know. It's just, you know, are we on the sidelines? I don't think we are at City Church. I really don't. I think we are in there being bold. But individually, are we living bold because Satan is being bold? We should be even more so. And we can be bold because the same Jesus that Peter and John witnessed is the same Jesus that we worship on Sundays, that we live for throughout the week. We can be bold because the Holy Spirit that Peter and John were filled with is the same Holy Spirit that indwells in every Christian in this room. It's the same Holy Spirit. And we can be bold because the same teachings and same commands of Jesus that compelled Peter and John and the early church and brothers and sisters throughout the years to live boldly, unashamed, even dying for their faith, that's the same scripture and the same commands and the same teachings of Jesus that we have, that we read, that we meditate on. So I think here at City Church, part of us living boldly is, is let's go, is that let's go to your initiative. I think that's how we are living boldly as a church family. Um, because of let's go, right, we're going urgently to the lost, trying to reach our friends and our neighbors with the good news that we believe, right? Through Let's Go, we're equipping people to live missionally, boldly, locally here in Tallahassee, across uh, college campuses, across the world. We're training up missionaries to go to unreached people groups, planting churches, supporting church plants. We're expanding our facility here to live boldly, to make room for more children, more students, more families, more guests, as we seek to see them transformed by the gospel as well. And I think, I know we can be confident in our boldness that God is with us, that the Holy Spirit is working through us, and our message is true, it's life-saving. And so let's close by looking at a verse that we've looked at every week so far in Acts and we'll continue to. And it's our marching orders given to us in Acts 1, verse 8. It says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you, and then you will be my witnesses to Jerusalem in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for uh, this section of Scripture, God. We thank you for the example of Peter and of, of John and of the early church. God, I pray that we would see their example and that we would be spurred to live boldly as well. Thank you for the Holy Spirit that you've given us. 
pray that we would, we would just find so much uh, comfort and strength in that, God, as we seek to tell others about, about your son, Jesus, and about the changing work of the gospel. I pray that we would be bold. I pray for our church. I pray for uh, the Anseras. Thank you for the blessing that you've given them. I pray for a lot of our college students coming back that you would uh, give them safety on their return. Your name I pray, amen.